All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, Photo Work, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf, recording from the Airstream in Woodstock, New York. Very snowy out, but beautiful. And I'm joined today, this is very exciting, I'm joined today by not only Mr. Chauvin Dalton, but also our associate producer and the guy who's always working really diligently behind the scenes, Mr. Taylor Selsback. Hello, Taylor. Hello, Michael. Hello, everybody. Hey, pull back the curtain, and it's Taylor. <laughs> right, <laughs> I'm <exactly>. here. <laughs> Taylor, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to, to finally be here and join you guys. Yeah, man. Yeah. So the reason that we decided to all do this together today is because we have a really exciting announcement. Um, we've been <laughs> talking about this, teasing this for maybe an inappropriately long amount of time, but um, <laughs> it's not our fault. The Photo Work Podcast now has a home at photowork.foundation and the PhotoWork Foundation is our newly accredited 501c3. So we are officially a tax-deductible nonprofit. So congratulations, everyone. <laughs> yes. So I really want to thank my friends at Proskauer Law Firm, who this is like thanking your agents at the Academy Awards, except... Um, it is. <laughs> and the agents Except deserve it and the lawyers deserve it because it's an incredibly That's complicated right. process to get the IRS and the attorney general and, and as it should be complicated because um, donations are tax deductible and et cetera. Uh, but they worked so hard and Peter K. Office, who's on the board with me uh, was just an incredible partner in this as well. But I really want to thank, um, yeah, Peter, Jeff Horowitz, Laura, Howie, David, uh, everyone at Proskauer who just did such an amazing job. And normally, by the way, this takes you know six to eight months. And after submitting all your material, and we got accreditation in I think under two months. It's sort of amazing. It was shocking when the letter came. Yes. So, so there's this the new website, as I mentioned, it's it's photowork.foundation. And the the website will house the podcast. It'll be a very interactive archive. We're gonna have a, a very hopefully robust form section, which Tower will talk about. But in the next couple of years, we're going to expand the mission to include mentorship programs and, and grant giving to deserving artists. And yeah, just we have other things we want to do, but those are the three main um, legs of the stool. And we're incredibly excited about it. It seems like a natural progression. Uh, I want to say, and this is really important, that the podcast and the formation of the foundation have run almost completely independently of financial assistance. But starting today, we really hope that that, that changes because we, we can't do it otherwise, period, the end. So we're asking you our, our dedicated audience to please go to the website and um, support the foundation. It's tax deductible. So we can continue to do this and, and provide even more um, assistance to the community, more engagement, more offerings. Everyone's going to be really excited. Um, but Taylor, why don't you tell us more about what's going on on the website and what you've been working on? Yeah. So besides a, a wonderful place to go and donate, uh, the website is right now housing um, as an archive, essentially, all of the podcasts. So we've created a section for all of the episodes and each episode has their own page with information about the artist with related links and resources that might have been mentioned during the podcast. There's images from the artists. 
Uh, you can search, you know, through the podcast to find specific things you might be interested in or looking for. Um, so it's, it's really exciting. And I know that we think that it's going to be a great place for people to kind of come back to and sort of look a little bit deeper into these episodes. And what we're also excited about is the forum section. So we wanted to sort of reach out and have an opportunity for, you know, everybody who's been so active and commenting on social media and reaching out to us about these episodes. We wanted a place where everybody could sort of come together and, you know, share their ideas, share their thoughts, discuss things about these episodes. So we've created a forum and each episode will have their own little place where all of you can go in and comment and ask questions. We've included even, you know, the original questionnaire from the photo work book so that people can go in there and sort of add their own takes on those questions. And we're, we're really looking forward to it. We, we want to sort of make this interactive. We want to kind of bring the community together. And we're going to be active there too, right, Sasha? We're going to we're going to yes. hop in there and Yeah, and, and I think that's and, a, a really important point is that although a lot of our listeners hopefully will be creating their community, um, talking to each other and, and getting to know one another, we will be there as well. And we may even have monthly or bi-monthly Zoom events that are sort of another offshoot of forming community. But yeah, for sure, we'll be chiming in. So, and I'm excited yeah, we, about that. We've got a lot of ideas sort of of where to take this, but this is just the start. And so we're, we're excited to launch it and we're excited to see, you know, how all of you uh, like it and, and what input you have as well. And I just want to underline one other thing, because the podcast right now is the dominant, you know, obviously the thing everyone knows and that we've been doing for a long time. But I just want to say again, that the foundation has been formed to do a lot more. So as I said, uh, mentorship programs and grant giving is going to be a big part of what the foundation builds up to. So, um, all right. Well, that's all super and uh, photowork.foundation. Get busy, people. Send us money um, so we can keep doing this and, and doing a lot more. And obviously, look, we're going to be, you know, going to bigger donors too. And, you know, we'll have to you know, really get in fundraising mode. That's, um, you know, something I think we've all been a little nervous about, but it's part of forming a foundation and um, we're up for it. So that's that. A um, few other things. I was at a exhibition the other night that I want to just mention and, and support. The Center for Photography at Woodstock has been a really important photographic center up here in this area, in the Woodstock, um, Catskill area, for about 45 years, I think. And they just moved recently into Kingston, which is a neighboring town, so they could uh, get a bigger space. And that's something that they're working on right now. Meanwhile, they have a temporary, they have exhibited a temporary space that just opened and will run until February 5th. And it's called Parallel Lives, Photography, Identity, and Belonging. Um, and it's a group exhibition of international contemporary artists drawn from CPW's annual open call for submissions. It was curated by Maya Benton, who is an absolutely fantastic curator and wonderful person. I know Maya a bit. And it's actually the largest exhibition in CPW's history. So that's, that's pretty cool. And it's on view at a space that was designed at the former IBM headquarters in Kingston. That's the temporary space they're using. IBM is, has in the past had a huge presence in this area, so sort of apropos to use that empty space. Anyway, go check it out. It's a really, really wonderful show. You know, maybe down the line, um, as they move into their new space, it'll become like a sort of a Dia Beacon in this area or something really neat like that. I'm really looking forward to seeing it develop and maybe even lending a hand in any way that I can. Okay, so we had also teased, I think, that we, after having a number of male guests, going to have a slate of women coming up. Well, that is true. But before that, <laughs> we sometimes just don't have total control over these things, people. We try. <laughs> I had a great conversation, which is this week's uh, episode, with my friend and colleague, the great gallerist, uh, Brian Clamp of Clamp Art. And I think it's a really great show. 
But yes, after this episode, we will get to that group of women. They're all lined up for January and February. So, um, Yes, we, uh, we do. We do have a nice lineup uh, coming up after Brian. Uh, but this show with Brian is, is really nice. And uh, the two of you have a, a very warm and friendly conversation. And it is really great to hear Brian's backstory in this, yeah. which is so interesting. Yeah. I mean, this, this wasn't, uh, you know, someone who was steeped in the, the art world coming up and sort of joined in. This was someone who really made their mark in the art world uh, by a lot of hard work. Yep. Hard work and faith, uh, believing in himself and pushing forward even when he was unclear and just trusting his gut and making it work. And of course, we talk a lot about how he finds artists and the process of working with artists. So I think it's going to be you know, really interesting for our listeners. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, if that's it, did, did we cover everything, guys? I think we did. Yeah. And Taylor, the website is amazing. And I, I am looking forward to that, to those forum discussions and listeners' responses to those forum questions. So really great job. Thanks. And, yeah, and, I'm, and we're excited about it. Depending on how active that forum gets and, and what comes out of it, you know, we may wind up doing a newsletter with some of the info that comes out of it. We'll see. So lots of, we've got lots of things in the hopper and we'll, we'll see what happens. But And I should say, yeah, I should say that it... It is always a work in progress. And so while we have season three and two up currently, uh, season one is still getting put together. So just be patient and we, yep. we will it's be adding episodes. Opening. Yep, definitely. All right. Well, Michael, if you don't mind, without further ado, please take it away. My pleasure. And here is your conversation with Brian Clamp. Brian Clamp, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast. It's fantastic to have you on the show. You and I go back a long ways as friends and colleagues. We've done some wacky and fun stuff together <laughs> over the years. <laughs> um, maybe we'll get to some of that. But anyway, thank you so much for, for being on. Yeah, thank you for having me. So we'll start how we always do, which is if you could just tell folks, you know, about your journey and how you got to where you are now as the um, owner of a great gallery in Manhattan called Clamp Art. Um, so, yeah, tell us tell us about your uh, childhood, where you come from and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I grew up in um, the southwest suburbs of Denver, Colorado. You know, really no, really no art people in my family whatsoever. I will say my mother is creative. She was very craftsy. Mm -hmm. um, she, <laughs> she likes decoupage and macrame uh -huh. um, and things of that sort. But um, yeah, I certainly had no formal art background to speak of. And I, I tended to excel. I mean, I, you know, I liked lots of different things in high school, but I was particularly good at math, and so that seemed my path. And by the end of high school, the very end of high school, the second semester of my senior year, I had one elective course to play with. And for reasons still unknown to me, I decided to take an elective darkroom photography course. <laughs> and... It, it was eye-opening. You would have um, been an accountant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knows what I would have been. But um, anyways, the, the class was amazing uh, in a large part because the professor, or not professor, the teacher, it was, it was her first year teaching. So she was young. She was very energetic and extremely enthusiastic. And she got me excited about the subject matter as well. And she started the beginning of every class with um, a short slideshow and through the course of the semester took us through the history of the medium. Uh, that would be the beginning of the classes. And then, you know, we'd go into the dark room and begin printing our own work. Both were exciting to me. I loved, I loved being exposed to art history, which was 
brand new to me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I did enjoy, you know, getting my hands dirty and getting in the dark room and, and producing my own work as well. So I uh, ended up going to undergraduate uh, to the University of Colorado in Boulder. It was an in-state school, you know, which uh, made sense for, for me and my finances. Uh, it's also an excellent school, so I was lucky to have that close to where I grew up. But I went to CU Boulder as a math major and, you know, continued to take art history courses and darkroom courses as electives as often as I could. But, you know, I thought my path was, was really uh, going, yeah, down the math path. And by the beginning of my junior year, it was the first semester of my junior year, I was in an abstract mathematics seminar. And it was a, you know, a small seminar class maybe eight students. And I remember, well, it started, it, it was an early morning class as well. I think it met like four or five days a week at 8 a.m., which as oh, you can God. imagine was painful. Very painful. And I remember early in the semester looking around the table and thinking to myself, these are the people I'm going to be working with for the rest of my life. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, as nice as they were, it just didn't seem like the right fit for me. And it was then that I ended up changing my major and I ended up getting a double degree. Um, I got a BA in art history and a BS in advertising. So I, you made a hard you know, left turn. I made a hard left turn, um, but you know, it became immediately apparent that I had made the the right choice. I I was so much happier, honestly. Mm -hmm. And so I finished my two degrees, and it was you know within a week of graduation, maybe two weeks that I was on a plane on my way to New York City. Wow. Um, I know I couldn't get out of Colorado fast <laughs> enough, to be honest. Uh, you know, I had, I had grown up there. I had gone to high school and college there, and it was time for um, bigger and more exciting things. So I moved to New York City uh, with no job, of course. Um, <laughs> luckily, I had, I had an apartment, but I had sent money ahead for an apartment on St. Mark's Place between 1st and A, which I had never seen. Wow. So thank goodness my, my flight got in very late. I remember driving across, you know, one of the bridges, looking at the city, thinking, what in the hell am I doing? Yeah. Um, but I showed up at the, the address. There were people hanging out on the stoop that I had to ask to move to get out of the way. Yeah, your first um, very New York experience. Exactly. People on the, the stoop. Key, yeah, but the, the keys worked. The apartment was there. I didn't get scammed. Right. <laughs> and the next day, it was time to start looking for a job. And, uh, you know, with the degrees I had, I, I thought I had come to New York to get an entry-level advertising position. Mm -hmm. At that time, we're talking January 1993, New York was in the midst of yet another uh, recession. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a lot out there, and the, the prospects were pretty grim. But uh, this is to tell you how, how green I truly was. I ended up putting on my suit. I had one suit and I put it on my first morning and hit the streets and started literally walking the streets of Manhattan in search of a job. I have no idea what I was thinking. <laughs> and I remember there was a bar on the Upper East Side that I wandered into because I, I had to start making money immediately. I only had money for my first month's rent. So, um, you know, by February 1st, I was going to have to um, have some money in my pocket um, in order to survive. And so, you know, I, I thought maybe I would get a part-time position or something or, you know, a job at night to get me through until I, I got my quote-unquote real job. But um, I remember walking into this bar in my suit and the <laughs> owner you know, just, uh, he must have been laughing to himself. And he was the nicest man and did the nicest thing for me, talking me out of 
accepting a position at his bar. He was like, you do not want to work here. I can assure you. He's like, you're going to be fine. He's like, go oh find God. something else. And and thank goodness I believed him. And so I... The first act to see your kindness. Yes, exactly. And uh, I ended up signing up at a temp agency. It's funny. I don't even know if temp agencies still exist. I think they do. Yeah. So um, signed up at a temp agency and the first assignment they gave me was a gallery on the Upper East Side, obviously because of my art history degree. Right. And so, you know, my first task at this gallery was literally putting labels on envelopes for a mailing they were doing. Um, you know, <laughs> galleries still sent out postcards for all their exhibitions yeah, at that I, point I, in time. I remember that. Yeah. And so... I had my my Walkman on um, with my headphones <laughs> and, uh, you know, was listening to music while I was doing my my boring task. And at some point during the day, the owner of the gallery came in and just started chatting me up and there were pictures on the walls. They specialized in late 19th and early 20th century American paintings. And um, we got to talking about the art. And he was a bit taken aback that I knew who the artists were, you know, that were hanging in the gallery. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so... Overqualified. That, yeah, well, compared to the other temps, I guess he had had, you know, for, for sending out mailings. Yeah. yeah, I impressed him. And so I was asked back, you know, to do another task and then asked back to do another task. And after a couple months of this, I finally got hired permanently. And I ended up working at the gallery for the next eight years. It was a fantastic job. And, you know, I learned everything I know, you know, at that gallery. They were, they were very kind. They were very trusting, um, you know, for someone so young and mm -hmm. inexperienced. But, you know, they gave me a lot of responsibility. I had a lot of fun. I was fascinated. And um, so anyway, so I had a very good time uh, working at Owen Gallery for all those years. But eventually, you know, knew that I really wanted to work with living artists. I was very interested in contemporary art. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I still had this passion for photography. So while I was working at, at the gallery, I was still shooting photographs. And I became a member of what was then called the Camera Club of New York, which is since rebranded as Baxter Street. Mm -hmm. And back then they still had group dark rooms, you know, so people were printing on site, but they also had an exhibition schedule. And I ended up becoming a member of the exhibition committee. And so I was, you know, in charge of looking through the slide submissions that came in mm -hmm. and um, scheduling shows in, in the gallery space. So finally, I decided that it was time for me to go back to graduate school. And I entered the master's program in art history at Columbia University, which was great because it allowed me to still work part-time while I was doing my full-time graduate work. Mm -hmm. And so I stayed at Owen Gallery while I was going to Columbia. But, you know, in two years when I was done with the master's program, I had a decision and it was like to either go back to Owen Gallery full-time or go in a new direction. And after a summer of contemplation, I decided to open my own business. And in retrospect, it was a completely insane idea. I had never worked at a contemporary art gallery. I didn't have a roster of artists, but luckily my enthusiasm, I guess, yeah. um, you know, uh, paid off. And I just worked really, really hard and, and made it work because it had to work. I didn't have any other choice. Yeah. You know, that was in 2000. And then shortly thereafter, 9-11 happened. And not only did that shock the New York City art world, it shook, you know, the whole world. And I remember it was, it was almost exactly a year after 9-11. I did not sell one piece of art. Wow. And so during the day, I was playing art dealer. And then at night, 
uh, once I closed things up, I would go to a bar in Midtown. It was a supper club, actually. And I was a bartender. And um, it was great. I actually really enjoyed it. It was very, very hard work. But the other people I worked with were amazing and fun and largely creative people. So I met all these wonderful musicians, artists, actors, many of whom are still my good friends today. And um, then eventually, you know, things started getting better and I was able to um, stop bartending. And, you know, then I ended up signing a lease on a space on West 25th Street between 10th and 11th Avenues. Mm -hmm. This was in 2003 when the, you know, the neighborhood was really like just taking off. And it was a little tiny space. The rent was $2,000 a month. And I was completely shaking in my boots, wondering how I would be able to come up with that much money every month for rent. But, you know, I hustled and I made it happen. And 22 years later, I've been invited by Sasha Wolf to talk on her <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, I remember that tiny space. It was a, yeah. a wonderful space. And then you moved to a bigger space, I think, in the same building. Correct. And, um, and now you're on 29th? Yeah, West 29th Street between 7th and 8th. Yeah, and a, and a fantastic... I love the space you have now. It's really fantastic. So you've continued to grow... Um, and that's the idea. But it's amazing hearing you say that that first space was $2,000 a month. Maybe to some people that doesn't sound like a lot. But A, the space was the size of a shoebox. Correct. Um, and, and B, I'm sure that was just terrifying. Yeah. And, and to the landlord's credit, you know, he, he was a nice guy. It was a, it, it was a, like a warehouse building. They stored business archives mm -hmm. before they decided to turn it into gallery spaces. And I remember my meeting with him in his office. He, his offices were actually in, in lower Manhattan. Um, they weren't on the premises because he owned many buildings. But I remember, yeah, having to convince him that, uh, yeah, I wasn't too much of a risk. And, you know, it was a few years later when I was moving into the larger space in the same building. He paid me a great compliment and he was like telling me that I did the most with the least, <laughs> you know, with the little tiniest space yep. that I had able, I had been able to make it happen. And, and that, that felt yeah, really that good. Yeah, that is a, a really nice compliment. When you first open that small space, your first space, who are you showing? How did you form those relationships? And, and why were you showing who you were showing? Like, how did you, you know, what I'm trying to get at is, you know, how did you start to form your vision for your roster? And, and, yeah. and what is, uh, we can get to what that was, what it is now, but how, how were those decisions made? And how did you implement them? You know, at the very beginning, the first artists that I began to represent were contacts that I had made at the Camera Club of New York. Mm -hmm. They were people that I had watched print, whose work I knew well, mm -hmm. that I was impressed by. And importantly, like people who I liked, you know, I liked their personality and I could envision myself collaborating with them. Um, so, so those were the very first artists on the roster. You know, soon I started, you know, reviewing portfolios, inviting people over to my space to look at work. And some of the first artists were young people who were who were just coming out of school. Um, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of Brian Fink in particular, who had just graduated from the School of Visual Arts. Mm -hmm. And he was working on a portfolio that wasn't finished yet of high school cheerleaders and football players that I ended up taking to the first art fair that I participated in outside of New York City. It was Photo LA and, you know, took his work to that fair. You know, and the, the roster at the beginning was a combination of, it was work that I really believed in and responded to personally, mm -hmm. but it was also work that, you know, I thought, I might have an audience for work that I thought was saleable, you know, and attractive. And so it was a, you know, it was a balance. Um, 
I was kind of finding my way. But then in that in that space on West 25th Street, my first public space, you know, I had been dealing privately for two years prior to that. The, you know, the first show was someone named Christopher Harris. And then the second show was a big summer group show that I called Boys of Summer. And that really sort of set the direction, I think, for the gallery and my focus. It was a lot of gay artists, uh, male subject matter. And, you know, a lot of the people I met during the course of that particular show are, are people I still know and, and work with now. The show was a total surprise. It was a big, big hit. And I remember getting a lot of press, including the New York Times, which felt very surprising and good. But that really set me up. It was after that show that things really began rolling. And the roster, as you can imagine, began to grow and really take shape pretty quickly after that. Just for the listeners, I want to just say that the New York Times to this day does not review very many photography shows. So to get a review in the New York Times of a summer group show when you're a young gallerist is incredibly unusual and must have been thrilling. And I'm sure you got reviewed in The New Yorker. My guess is Vince Soletti probably. Yeah, I, I think he did review that show as well. I mean, I remember when I got my first review which was in the New Yorker. It's it's so thrilling. It's my parents cried. I mean, it was like, <laughs> uh, but it's you know it really sort of there's a way in which it makes you feel legitimate, right? I mean, I don't know if you had that feeling. I did. Where I was yeah. like, oh yeah, I, I this is real. I'm I'm the I'm the real thing. You know, I'm not just playing at it. Yeah, and that's what I said earlier. I was like, you know, when you start out, you feel like you're playing art dealer, mm -hmm. and then at some point playing for long enough becomes your reality. Yep. Yeah. And I think I think reviews and seeing the gallery's name in print really solidifies that. I think it also solidifies it for potential clients, right? Because mm -hmm. it tells them that you're the real deal also. So they may have come in and seen work but not, you know, trusted their own taste. Um yep. may not have trusted the sort of provenance and just the legitimacy. And, and then when you start getting press, it signals to potential clients and collectors that you're sort of a safe bet, right? You know, who else it... Artists. It solidifies <laughs> things with, well, artists, but, but other gallerists oh, yeah, as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, remember, I remember Julie Saul calling me out of the blue. I had never met her before and wondering who in the hell I was, you know? Uh -huh. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so that was interesting. And, and those kind of professional relationships, you know, result from those sort of things as well. Yeah, absolutely. That sort of happened to me with Bonnie Ben Ruby, mm -hmm. but who said something to the effect of, I've been watching what you're doing and you're doing a good job, kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had my, uh, experiences with Bonnie too. I remember her inviting me up to her gallery and taking me out to dinner one night. And I was just sort of wondering why this was happening. But yeah, she was very warm and, and friendly. And um, it was fun. Yeah, it's really lovely when, you know, the sort of people who have been doing it for a while, acknowledge the people who are starting out and give us a little pat on the back. Mm -hmm. really, you know, really that's something feeling. important to remember. Yeah. When you're more established as well as like, yeah, remembering to help give a leg up to, to younger people. Yep, absolutely. I have, um, you and I have a colleague and friend, Tom Gitterman, who's our contemporary. But when I started out, I hadn't worked in a gallery and I didn't know what I was doing. And I had a, a background in photography and filmmaking and, you know, Tom, spent a lot of time with me after someone introduced us, you know, teaching me how to write invoices and pack up work. And, you know, it was just so appreciative. I'm sure when I first started out, I called you and asked you for advice. I mean, I, I didn't, mm -hmm. there was so many things I didn't know. Yeah. And you do, you, you have to, you have to feel comfortable enough to ask questions. Yeah, you do. And, you know, people, people are generally generous, yep. you know, when, when you come to them and want advice. 
So one other thing you said sort of in passing, but I, I also want to just sort of underline is how important it is to like the people you work with. I mean, I, I feel very strongly about that also. And, and the main reason I think that's important is because mid-sized gallerists, you know, and maybe all gallerists, you know, it's sort of harder for me to imagine this in some ways with some of the mega galleries, but for sure for people like you and me, there is a lot of collaboration. And so you want to like the person, not just because, hey, it's nice to like the person who's on your roster, but because you're really actually dealing with them. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. not like you call once a month to say, just wanted to let you know I sold a print. I mean, you know, and I I know you and I know that you work closely with your artists. And so you, you really have to have rapport. At what point did you sort of you know, know that you wanted to be involved? Because I, I do know gallerists who sort of don't. They're more interested in the selling and less interested in the sort of nurturing and developing projects, or helping their artists develop projects. So mm-hmm. when did you sort of, you know, realize that you wanted to really have real involvement in, in artist yeah. development? I think I knew that from the very beginning. You know, as soon as I, I began representing artists and having personal relationships with these people and and recognizing that different artists needed different things from me. Yep. Some artists needed help with editing. Some artists were totally fine with that and just wanted, you know, more help in terms of, of marketing. Some artists, you know, want to talk about ideas for future projects. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody had had and has different needs. And it was exciting to be able to bring different skills to the table in order to make these collaborations successful. And so, you know, as the gallery grows, that's one of the hard things to let go of. Mm -hmm. At some point, you know, you can't do everything and you do need to hand, hand work over to other people on the staff, you know, but those personal relationships and being involved in all of in all of those decisions and conversations yeah is something that i still really value and and am still very much involved in i want to use the example of your most recent uh artist pickup for lack of a better term as Mm -hmm. sort of just to talk a little bit about how these things how these decisions are made so you just started working with the great jess dugan and uh, recently opened their fantastic exhibition. So how did that come about? And, you know, what was your thinking there? As much as you can share pros and cons, you know, things you were concerned about and and ways in which you were excited, what gave you pause? Yeah, and I think Jess is uh, an excellent example because the development of our professional relationship reflects how long it sometimes takes for these things to happen. Mm -hmm. Artists need to be playing the long game. And, you know, when you sit down and, and meet a gallerist, you're planting seeds for a relationship that will grow over time. I must have known Jess for a decade before we decided to work with one another But Jess, you know, was always in touch, was always friendly, was, you know, was friends with many of, with artists on my roster and many other artists, you know, that I was friends with as well. So our, our networks, our professional networks definitely overlapped. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because over that period of time, Jess and I had had meetings, had talked, and I had even had, I remember other gallerists mentioning to me that they thought Jess would be a good fit for my roster, Mm -hmm. which was interesting. (laughs) There was a portfolio review event in Denver, Colorado, and the room where we were doing the portfolio reviews had a Jess Dugan exhibition up. And I, I remember at that time, Terry Etherton coming over and asking me why I didn't represent Jess yet, uh-huh. <laughs> which was which was funny. But anyways, then things changed, opportunities opened up. 
And Jess reached out to me about six months ago, telling me about the new book that was going to be published from Mac. And the time seemed right. I, I always knew the work was right. Um, and I liked the work, importantly. I, I responded to the work. But I also had sat back over that decade and watched Jess grow as an artist. Yes. Not only in terms of their craft, but in terms of getting the message out about their work mm -hmm. and forging these amazing relationships, especially with museums. Jess is, is a real professional, right? Like. Yes. It's just Je Jess handles their career with such professionalism. And that's a, a real blessing for a dealer because it means you have a true partner in the artist's development. Some artists, yeah. you know, just want to make work. They're not out networking. Yeah. But Jess is an excellent, excellent networker. Yeah. And Jess is careful and thoughtful and strategic. Mm hmm and that was all extremely impressive to me. And so, so when, when Jess approached me, you know, most recently, there wasn't a question of yes or no. It was like, all right, when can we make this happen? Mm -hmm. And the timing of the monograph was fortunate because then we could go ahead and plan a show to coincide with the release of the book. Mm -hmm. And everything you know, sort of naturally unfolded. Uh, that's the way, that's the way hopefully it should always go. It was, it was easy, not completely effortless, but, but felt natural. Yeah. And things have paid off. The response to the show has been wonderful. The show itself, you know, looks amazing. And, I, you know, just in the six months since we've been together, I've been able to watch even more wonderful things unfold. That's really a great success story of a, a working relationship. Just sort of slots into your, the way the gallery is positioned in terms of sort of gay and queer artists. Was that important to you in picking up Jess? I mean, does, this may be just a silly question, but I guess I'm interested in hearing about that niche and yeah. how important that niche has been to your career or not. Yeah. And, you know, at the beginning, I was worried about doing too much gay photography. Mm -hmm. I didn't want, I didn't want to paint myself into a corner. I didn't want to be the, the gay art dealer. Mm -hmm. and well, you so are I a really, gay art dealer, but. <laughs> I am a gay art dealer, but I, I wanted to strike. I have uh, news uh, for you. Brian, sit yeah. down. I have something to tell you. <laughs> Mom, I have something to tell you. No, it, you know, I wanted to strike more of a balance. Right. I didn't want to, I didn't want to alienate 90% of the collecting public, right. you know, by, by focusing too strongly on that. And, you know, in a sense, I'm glad I, I did have a balance. But as time went on, and the gallery was more established, and I was more confident, and I was able to follow my own instincts and my own gut more directly, you know, things did move further in that direction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, queer wasn't really a thing back in 2000, like it is in 2022. Mm -hmm. And so the society changed. And that really is largely what I was responding to as well. You know, the, the community is much more visible than it ever was. Mm -hmm. You know, there were certainly issues of urgency that that needed to be addressed. And the galleries program responded to that. You know, the idea of the concept of LGBTQ didn't exist in 2000. So anyways, you know, Jess and Jess's work fit very clearly into the program I had already established. We were already representing Mariette Pathy Allen, who's, who's been documenting the transgender community for 40 plus years. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, you worry you don't want two artists work to overlap right. too closely. But their work, their work is quite different, both, well, formally, certainly. And the fact that 
that Jess is a non-binary person themselves mm-hmm. um, was different, you know, than Mariette. And so it didn't feel like it was too close for comfort. Mm-hmm. It just, it, it felt like it made sense. And it does. That That's really wonderful. Yeah, it can be tricky that way. But when it winds up being a situation where the work is, you know, complementing um, yeah. rather than, than competing, it's, it's and, wonderful. Yeah. And, you know, there was an, uh, another significant artist on our roster is Lissa Rivera. Mm-hmm. And Lissa Rivera has been photographing her non-binary partner BJ for a long time. And so I had already undergone a great learning curve by working with Lissa and Mariette. And so in some ways I felt like it prepared me to be ready to represent an artist like Jess of their caliber. And so maybe, yeah, maybe Jess needed time before they were ready to work with me as well. Mm -hmm. You know, something else that I am really fascinated by and my, you know, I'm interested, you know, look, some questions I'm asking you and I know the answers to. And now, <laughs> now, now I'm going to ask you a question I don't know the answer to. So fun for me. You do tremendous, I don't know about tremendous, but you do a lot of secondary market mm-hmm. sales. And it is a significant emphasis if you are on your website there's great care and attention paid to the listing of that work and uh, and there's quite a lot of it and i want you to talk about the pros and cons i don't know if there are any cons but of representing both living artists and secondary market work and if you could also explain to uh, the audience uh, a little bit about what I'm actually talking about, because some people probably don't even know what that means, but I'll let you explain yeah. it. So what you're talking about is primary market versus secondary market. Primary market is when you are selling work directly from an artist's studio. And secondary market is when you're reselling work that's already been out in the world. So you may be taking things on consignment from private clients. You may be buying things from private clients or buying things from auction and reselling them. Mm-hmm. So, so those artists may be historic artists that are no longer with us, or they may be living artists who have representation by other galleries. Mm-hmm. So you're not dealing with them directly. You know, the main reason why... I started from the beginning doing primary and secondary is because, you know, when I worked on the Upper East Side, the gallery was only secondary market. Of they course, didn't, right. They were doing historical material. Mm-hmm. They didn't represent living artists. And so I knew that market. I knew right. how it worked. Yep. Yeah, I saw how that all happened. And, you know, with my art history background, I really enjoyed the the research mm-hmm. and the more academic side of that. It was fun and is fun and exciting to me. I think that sometimes contemporary dealers can maybe look down upon secondary market. And, you know, a lot of galleries, maybe the majority of contemporary galleries do at least some secondary market Mm -hmm. um, sales, but often that's sort of quieter, uh, things that are done in the back office. That's right. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I've always been very transparent about that. And from the beginning, the secondary market sales have been 50% of my business. Right. And at the beginning, and the beginning, I'm saying the first 10 years of the business, it was very beneficial to my artists. Those secondary market sales generated more income Mm -hmm. and allowed me the freedom to be a little more experimental with what I was doing on the primary market. I could take more chances and have a bit more fun. Yeah. And so that was a good thing. You know, both remain extremely important to the gallery. And sometimes the secondary market material finds its way into the exhibition program as well. And that has been 
fun and exciting as well. Yeah. You mean in a group show or? Yeah. 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 Sometimes uh, group shows will incorporate work by, by artists I represent, you know, and I invite other living artists participate in these shows, but there may also be, you know, historic or, or other secondary market material. And sometimes shows may be entirely secondary market. Right. There was a, a collector I know who had been collecting photography for maybe 30 years and decided it was time for a shift of focus. And so we showed his collection. We, we got the whole collection for resale and uh, did one entire exhibition of just that work. So I think, yeah, there's one artist I can think of, Frankie Amaris, who we represent, who was in the show. But I think everything else in that show was all secondary market. And when you do art fairs, I know that you mix in your booth is often a mix between your primary and secondary. Yeah, it depends on the fair. Certainly the APAD photography show will always be a mix, right. especially because the historic material is so strong at that particular fair. Yes, yeah. You know, other fairs like Miami, for example, I think almost always is exclusively primary market right, material. Right. That's um, a sort of so, splashier. Um. Yeah. You have to read your audience <laughs> yeah, and, and know what to bring. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Um, Miami bring large color mm -hmm. poppy. They may not get Nan Golden in Miami. No, I don't know. Why am I picking on Miami? It's so mean. Anyway. <sighs> <laughs> I can pick on Miami for a while, but we don't we don't need to go there. So, you know, we sort of just have a few more minutes left, but I wanted to ask you as much as you feel comfortable talking about this, and I certainly am happy to participate. What are the ups and downs? What what causes the ups and downs in your professional life and and how do you, you know, weather the downs psychologically? I mean, you know, the ups and downs are largely caused by the economy at large. Mm -hmm. You know, when there's a real estate bubble, when there's a recession, when there's unchecked inflation, you know, obviously these things are, are going to affect your business because they're affecting your clients. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's the client's confidence and, and sense of comfort, you know, that, that dictates if they're buying and how much they're buying, what sort of price point, you know, uh, they're comfortable with. Yeah, so I would say those are the, the economy is sort of the largest thing that that impacts the business but it can be a lot of other things you know you can have one two-month show that just surprises you and doesn't do well mm -hmm. and you and I have talked about this recently it's like two months of no sales can completely sort of change the whole situation yep you know and I'm a nervous person mm -hmm. <laughs> by nature, I think. And one of the biggest challenges over the past 22 years has been to teach myself to calm down mm -hmm. and sit back and ride the wave. You know, yep. it's like things will get worse, but they will eventually get better. And you need to have faith in what you're doing, faith in your experience, and and trust that the pendulum will swing back the other direction. You know, I use the analogy of the pendulum often in terms of the popularity of photography within the larger art world. Mm -hmm. Photography seems to come in and out of fashion in the same way that abstract painting or figurative painting or fabric arts might. And there was a time where the pendulum had definitely swung to the right. And some of the most major artists, you know, in the art world were people like Andreas Gursky, Richard Prince, Cindy Sherman, who were all primarily using photography and the pendulum has swung back the other direction and although there are more photographers than there ever has been 
I don't know. I feel like it's a, it's been a harder time for photography, you know, for 10 years now. Yeah, I and, agree. And I feel like that pendulum will eventually swing back the other direction. But I think also, you know, we're sitting back and we're noticing changes in what's coming out of artist studios. Younger artists are producing work in more than one medium. They're combining media. And so that's sort of affecting the photography market mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. You know, when when you and I started getting involved in this business, there were a lot of medium-specific galleries dealing solely in photography. Those numbers have drastically shrunk. And, and being too medium-specific can sometimes feel a little old-fashioned. Mm -hmm. I know you're still very much a, like, classic photography person yep. and, and I and I admire that focus and that tenacity. But that that can be another challenge, yeah, you know, absolutely. for for your business. Your business, I guess what I'm getting at is your business has to um be nimble and you have to be adaptive and you have to be able to respond to changes that are sort of outside mm -hmm. of your control. Absolutely, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, first of all, j just uh emphasize what you said about, yeah, when I started out, there were many contemporary fine art photography specific galleries that were so well respected. I mean, it was just part of the New York gallery world. And now there's almost none. It's really shocking. Yeah. But photography was very in at a certain point, And it's facing many more challenges right now. And, you know, just to state the obvious, the prices, because we work in additions, the price point is much lower than for mm -hmm. other art forms. And we can't charge the same amount as, as someone charges for oil painting or whatever. So sculpture, where there's only one of something. And so there are a lot of challenges built into being a photography dealer. And it, it makes perfect sense to me that a lot of people are not photo exclusive anymore well and you talk to dealers who aren't as familiar in dealing with photography and they're always like how do you deal with all this additioning mm -hmm. all the technical information yeah. you know different sizes um it's it a pain in the ass <laughs> yeah it is a lot more complicated in many ways <laughs> yeah well, Brian, thank you so much for doing this with me. You're my, unless I'm forgetting someone, I do not think I am. I think you're my first other art dealer guest, and I'm so happy it's you. Yeah, I'm so honored, uh, yeah, to be asked and to be perhaps the, the first gallerist. And um, I just want to thank you sincerely for how easy you make this, you know, it's, it's like we're talking on the phone. Right. That's the idea. It's also, yeah. it's also um, helps that we've known each other for a really long time. I will just say very quickly that I can't get into the whole story, but during one of the really bad... Oh, it was after... Yeah, it was 2008 after, yeah, it was after the big housing crash. You and I and a few friends of our colleague friends of ours teamed up to sort of, you know, just hustle and create this. I don't know what would you call what we did. We were, I, I would call it a collective. Yeah, a collective to try and and help each other make sales, and and we came up with a lot of really neat ideas. It was not a get rich quick scheme, but it did <laughs> it, it did help out. And I think that it provided a lot of just solace in the camaraderie. And so. yeah, it was called Project Five. Yep. And I think maybe more than anything, it helped calm our nerves. Yes. Which was something I started talking about earlier. Yep. You know, just that camaraderie and that support made us all feel better Without and a doubt. helped us helped us weather that storm. Yep. Yeah. That was a tough period, boy. Yes, and it also helped that one of our events was a um, a whiskey drinking um, <laughs> gallery hop. So that I forgot <laughs> about that. That was fun. <laughs> that calmed the nerves as well. Anyway, okay, Brian, thank you so so much, and congratulations on everything, and congratulations on this 
new uh, exhibition. How long is Jess's exhibition up for? Jess's show will be up through January 7th, 2023. Okay, so everyone go see it if you can. If you're in New York, if you can get to New York. Um, it's such a beautiful, moving, uh, beautifully um, hung show. It, it just is, it's, it's such a pleasure and um, as are you, Brian. So thank you again and, and take care. Thank you. Have a great evening. You too. Bye. Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The associate producer is Taylor Selsback, and the executive producer is Sasha Wolf. Our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate us with all the stars available on your listening platform. 